I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. So first, of course, I want to tell you that I have a new piece up on Medium about grief and chronic illness. It's called The Grief Keeps Coming. Grief is something that comes up so often in these conversations, including in today's episode, actually, and I'm really trying to find relatable ways to talk about it. If you're interested, you can find it by heading to my Medium profile at medium.com slash at B. And yes, the at sign is necessary. And of course, here's a quick reminder that I have a Patreon campaign, which is a really simple way for listeners to support the show financially on a monthly basis. So if you've been enjoying the show and you also have a couple bucks to spare, I'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. This week, I'm talking to Stephanie Tate about Lyme disease and the way the surrounding controversy hurts patients and about building a life around your fluctuating limitations. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, well, I like to start just by asking people, how was your health when you were a kid? So when I was a kid, I was what people consider relatively healthy. Um, I was a dancer really seriously for years. I did soccer. I was a, you know, fast runner and that's what I was known for in soccer being so fast. So I was very energetic and outgoing. And I laugh now because my mom couldn't get me to nap. Like that was the big, the big (laughs) fight, right? I didn't want to sleep. I was never tired, Yeah. which is pretty much the opposite of how I am now. Yeah. yeah, there were no there were no signs when I was little that there was anything coming. Mm-hmm. I was very quote unquote healthy. Yeah. So and that happens. Um, yeah. And so then for you, were there any early signs that made you think that something was going on with your health or did it happen kind of dramatically? Um, it came in stages, but it did start somewhat dramatically. I was in high school. I was probably about 16, maybe 15 when it first started. Um, in the beginning, the first time something was really wrong, we just called breathing attacks for lack of a better word. I would be perfectly fine. Um, the first time it ever happened, I was at like a musical theater rehearsal for a high school play and I was fine and I was talking with somebody. And then all of a sudden I felt like I couldn't breathe. And the more I tried to pull air in and the more they told me you're breathing, I can see you, you're breathing. It just didn't feel like the oxygen was getting to me and I was gasping and heaving and getting lightheaded and dizzy and there was no real explanation for it. I assumed in the beginning, oh, this must be what asthma feels like. But in talking to a physician, it didn't sound like asthma at all. I was breathing. My airway was fine. Mm -hmm. But they did end up giving me an inhaler because they wanted to give me something. Right. But this went on for a while. And from there, everything was really disconnected symptom wise. So there were signs something was wrong, but we weren't piecing them together. Like I, my cognitively, I went from being like top of my class type of grades to barely retaining material. Uh, I was sleeping all the time and never felt like I was getting enough sleep, but it was at that age. So doctors basically said, well, of course she doesn't want to get up and go to class. She's a 16 year old teenager. She's probably just depressed. Yeah. Or like teens have different circadian rhythms. So it's fine. But they were all so disjointed from each other that we didn't think to put them together. And that's actually how disease progression went for me 
for years. Mm -hmm. There were lots of things that were obviously wrong, but none of them seemed to be connected. By Mm -hmm. college, we added seizures, later arthritis. So it was just sort of like throwing dartboards or darts at a dartboard, right? Like you have this, you have that, you have all these things. They have nothing to do with each other. But look, you just have this whole board full of lots of rare things all at once. And while and while that was happening, because that sounds very familiar, um, and obviously you were going to doctors, you mentioned that with the asthma, were you also getting formal diagnoses for some of this, like the arthritis, for example? In the beginning, no. In the beginning, everything was written off as this just sounds like depression. Or on the other end, we had doctors that said, this doesn't make any sense. And I don't see any physical reason for this on a test. So it sounds like she might just be doing this for attention. Mm -hmm. Those were sort of the only two answers I got in the beginning. Uh, The first time I had a seizure, that was sort of a, okay, well, that's a thing. And we can see that and that's real. And when there wasn't an answer for that, they just called it epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people don't know, epilepsy really is the non-diagnosis diagnosis for seizures, right? People think epilepsy is like a specific disease. It's really just the catch-all name for it. You don't have a brain tumor. We don't. We can't tell why, but you are having seizures, so it's just epilepsy. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they kind of started the guessing diagnoses, the diagnoses that are all off my chart now. We just sort of checked things off one by one. Maybe you have lupus, so we'll give you, you know, steroids and try to pull back your immune system. Oh, wait, that made you a lot sicker, so it's not that. Never mind. Maybe you have MS. Okay, well, you meet some of the criteria, but not all. They just sort of threw diagnoses. For a while, it was uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Then they added fibromyalgia. The arthritis came later. It was just sort of like a domino effect of diagnoses, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them things that were definitely on my chart. But the rest of the time, it was more of the, uh, I don't see a medical explanation for this. So it's probably just in your head. Yeah. Good luck. Like, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Learn to manage well, it. Fine, right? It goes from maybe you're just depressed, and on the other end of the spectrum, it's maybe you're just making it up. And then there's this weird intersection where you get the people that go, maybe you've just convinced yourself that you're sick, and so now you actually are sick. Yeah. But really, it's just because you want to be sick, so now you're making yourself. It, it makes no sense. Yeah, maybe your health sense. anxiety is just manifesting in real symptoms now. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and like one of the things that I am trying to get better at talking about too, um, this is not a, like a reflection of what you just said, just I'm realizing it as I'm saying it, is that like it is also true that there are like physical trauma, sorry, physical responses to trauma. And so there's like this other category that sometimes gets lumped in with what you just said, which is like it's, it's all in your head. You made yourself well, sick. And they're not the I- same, but language. <laughs> The irony here is I have a complex post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. which I was not diagnosed with until a couple of years ago. And so I am actually going through the process right now of unraveling that some of the symptoms from Lyme do mirror body responses to early long-going trauma. Mm -hmm. And so there is a possibility that some of this was either inflamed by that or there's sort of coexisting issues, Mm -hmm. but... That, that it is sort of ironic, right? Like, yeah. yeah, some of this probably could have been caused by that alone, but n- not all of it. There were enough things going wrong that there was definitely an underlying problem that they weren't catching. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's, I think that's like part of what it, 
what can make it so hard to talk about and like pull this stuff apart is it's also similarly like, yes, stress or anxiety or depression will make symptoms worse if you have them, but that doesn't mean that they're causing them all. And so it's like there's so much nuance that I feel like it can be really hard to talk about, especially at the beginning when that's not at all clear as a person, like as a patient. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, maybe it is. Like maybe this is my health anxiety manifesting and I just have to work harder or whatever. Like there's early stages where that kind of junk really seems plausible. And that's so frustrating. Well, it's also the self-fulfilling prophecy because the more you're sick and, and you feel like your life's being taken away from you and you're trapped and you can't do anything about it, well, that's going to cause some feelings of anxiety and depression. Yeah. The more oh, you're yeah. trapped in bed every day and the more your doctors are gaslighting you and telling you there's nothing wrong with you and the more helpless you feel, yeah, you're going to have mental health issues that come with that. But the second you go in and say, you know what, I feel like I do meet the criteria for depression now, mm-hmm. the more you hear, well, see, we, we told you, we're so glad you finally come around and yeah. realize that all this was all along. Yeah. So you're almost scared to get help, right? Because yeah feel like you have to choose between getting help managing your mental health crises and your physical health ones mm-hmm. because the second you put any kind of depression or anxiety on your diagnoses yeah. every emergency room you go into after that will treat you differently every doctor you go to with symptoms is going to run it through that filter and say oh well i see here that you you know you've struggled with depression yeah pain fatigue that 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 could all just be caused by that great solved that have a nice day yes it is a huge huge problem i it's not like <laughs> there's a lot to be said about that i feel like and we can keep moving but just like yes i hate that this is happening because it's true the stigma of having that on your chart when you also have chronic illness is like an enormous barrier to good care huh <sighs> Um, okay. Which is compounded exponentially more if you're female. Yes. I yes. just want to say like across the board, if you're female, then it feeds into this historical idea of hysteria, right? That yeah. we're just hysterical because we're female and we're not rational enough to tell that we're not sick yeah. or that we, we blow symptoms out of proportion compared to men, which bears no basis in reality at all. No, but no. The, it's way worse on this if you're female. Yeah. Yeah, it's like as soon as you get into there's like these intersecting factors about social location that like people of color aren't taken as seriously and people who are told to lose weight. Yeah, and when you're in more than one of these categories, it's like doctors are just seeing you with these huge filters. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, So, so for you, you were talking about this stuff kind of starting in college. And so were you, how was college itself? Like what was it like to be a student as all of this stuff was starting to happen? I gave college a really good go and I don't I don't talk about this a lot because now I'm an author and a speaker and you want to project a certain amount of knowledge in your area of expertise. Uh, I don't have a degree mm-hmm. because I consistently got dropped from classes for too many absences. Mm-hmm. I would try to be that student that would volunteer my disability needs day one to my professors. This is a thing. This is what's going on with me. I may miss class. I can make it up. I'm very capable. Just make sure I get the material. But I don't know if it's changed since then, but back then there really wasn't any wiggle room on. You you miss X number of classes per quarter. There's nothing the professor can do. You're just dropped, period. End Mm -hmm. of story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never finished my degree. I kept going and kept going and kept trying and I did amass a good chunk of credits, but just couldn't get across that finish line. And finally 
had to leave when I couldn't really show up to class at all anymore. Yeah. So wasn't able to finish that. And that's like, that is definitely, you just mentioned, what is it like now? That is a huge ongoing issue. I know, gosh, like much earlier now, sometime last year, maybe I interviewed someone who's in college right now and she was facing so many of those same issues um, of just like working with. And at this point, I think most colleges have like a dedicated person who works on disability and access or EDI. And so she would go to the disability advocate. And even with that person who's supposed to be on her team, who's supposed to make sure that she gets accommodations, professors are just like, no, sorry, even if it's not a specific number of absences, it can also be participation requirements. So you weren't here, so you didn't participate. And so this chunk of your grade that's based on participation is just a zero and there's nothing I can do about it. Like, there's all these barriers that professors put up and sometimes under the guise of like preparing you for the real world, which I put in air quotes because that's like the real world is just as difficult for all of these reasons. But like they don't need to tell you that you already know. Right. Well, and that's it's such a backwards way of approaching things. Right. Like so the real world is unequitable. So let's, instead of fixing that, let's make education more inequitable so we can compare, prepare kids for being discriminated against, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I see that, I have a son um, who has autism mm-hmm. and, and I see that so often with the way people react to some of my complaints about mm-hmm. the way we treat autistic students is mm-hmm. there's a lot of, well, he has to get prepared for that because that's what it's going to be like out in the world. Like what I hear you saying is, Let's get him used to the idea of discrimination now so that he'll accept that as normal and not push back too hard when he's an adult. Yeah. Which is terrifying, right? Like, if we can just get them used to it younger, then they'll accept this is how society is supposed to work and they won't push back and demand more rights. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all about normalizing. That is true and terrifying and like, yeah galvanizing in some ways it's definitely my experience in college it was yeah we want one type of learner because these are the people that are going to show up every day to a traditional nine-to-five job with no absences and Mm -hmm. if you can't do that well then why are you here wanting a degree to get a good job anyways you should just go park your butt and yeah you know apply for disability because that's so easy to get right (laughs) right easy to qualify yeah yeah um okay so at that time Obviously, if you're having a lot of absences, things must have been getting really difficult. And you mentioned, like, they were looking at lupus, et cetera, et cetera. So do you think there was a moment when you kind of changed from thinking, like, oh, I'm a person who has a couple weird things going on to, like, I am a person with an illness? I think it really was around college Mm -hmm. because for a long time I thought this is probably temporary, Mm-hmm. And a lot of that admittedly had to do with the faith background I was raised in. I was completely convinced I was going to be some story where I was going to miraculously get better and everyone would see how great my faith was. Once I started to get disillusioned with that and really plug into the idea that this was affecting my ability to go to school, eventually it was affecting my ability to hold a job. I lost a bunch Mm -hmm. of sort of hourly wage kind of jobs throughout college, again, because I'd call in sick too often. Yeah. It really started to dawn on me that this was not an isolated temporary thing. This was a way of life. Yeah. And so at that time, I got really comfortable with the the moniker of like chronically ill. Mm -hmm. But it took years and years and years before I got comfortable with the idea that I was disabled. Like that felt 
like a category that wasn't meant for me, right? Like I didn't, I wasn't using a wheelchair. I wasn't, so it didn't apply to me. Yeah. Uh, it took me years to realize, no, like that's literally what being disabled means when you're ill enough that you can't function on a day-to-day basis the way that the outside world expects you to. That's a disability. Right. Yeah, I was probably around college when I knew this is this is my life. It's it's going to be like this for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just going to go away tomorrow or next week or on its own, which sometimes like when things creep up on you, it feels like well maybe they'll just creep away again. Like I'll wake up one morning and it'll be over. Yeah. And that's an unusual case. Um okay, so you're talking about going to doctors and getting looked at for a bunch of different things while also kind of none of these pieces make sense together. And right. so after you left college, were you working? And also how long were you kind of in that that state of like a little bit of limbo, I guess? So it took about 15 years for me to go from those breathing attacks to holding a diagnosis in my hand, which is, you know, a long time. Um, at the end of college, when I left college, I actually got married outrageously young. <laughs> uh, it was a very short-lived marriage, didn't work out, went back, lived with my parents for a while. Tr- again, tried to go back to college, tried to work, did the best I could at faking being a healthy person, mm-hmm. um, ended up meeting my husband now, uh, got married again, and he knew from the get-go that I was chronically ill. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they had sort of just put that overarching label of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia over everything. Mm -hmm. So other things that would come up uh, were just sort of side issues of no, like the real day-to-day issue is you have this chronic fatigue syndrome thing and that's just the umbrella that explains everything else. Mm -hmm. So once they did that, I sort of accepted this is a long-term lifelong chronic thing then. This is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. So we went into marriage with him knowing from the get-go that this is what things were like. And he was very supportive of work, don't work, be home. Mm-hmm. Anything is fine with me. We just want you to be as healthy and functional as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had our first son relatively quickly. So then people are generally more accepting of the fact that you're at home and don't work or go to school. It's so right. okay. Well, if you're a stay-at-home mom, that's like a allowable label. Yeah. So I just sort of enveloped into that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and continued to just sort of accept that I just had these mystery things wrong with me. It was probably all related to chronic fatigue and didn't push too much harder. Every couple of years, they'd add, you know, some new mystery symptom to the list and say, we don't know, but it's probably all related to whatever's wrong with you. Good luck with that. But it wasn't until hmm, maybe about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right about the time we, we moved from California to Oregon. Mm-hmm. So very different climate coming from the San Francisco Bay Area to Oregon. A lot more moisture up here, which means a lot more naturally occurring molds. Yeah. So when we moved up here, disease progression started to move very, very rapidly. Mm. And I got much worse, much quicker, which sort of reignited this desire to go back and say, do we really have a label for everything then? Is this really, do I just have to accept this is the rest of my life? Or could we go back to square one and kind of start over and test for things? Are there new things we haven't tested for? What could we look at? Yeah. And are there new tests available? Because that's another thing. Like 
new stuff is emerging all the time, like explanations for some symptoms or treatments for those explanations. And like, it's easy to lose track of that or to be completely unaware of it. And of course, you know, practicing doctors are also are also often unaware because it's not a part of their day-to-day life either. So when you've been sick for a decade and you turn around, sometimes it's like, oh, all of a sudden I have different questions to ask. But I also think there was a bit of like a mental, emotional barrier there, right? That eventually you sort of go through what they used to call the stages of grief, Mm -hmm. which is not really a very accurate model, but it makes sense here in that you sort of progress through these different feelings about your illness and you move to acceptance, right? Like Mm -hmm. I am chronically ill. This is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I've accepted that. Yep. I'm going to move on and figure out how to live my life this way to open yourself up and go back in and say, but do we really have this sorted out or is there more? Is there maybe an actual curable thing underneath all of this? You almost have to give up that acceptance and walk back in and be willing to potentially have to go through that whole grief cycle all over again if the answer is no. We don't have any new answers for you, especially when, you know, some of the tests you go through are painful and uncomfortable and expensive yeah, and expensive. And taking money to throw at these tests to find out you didn't get an answer and you're no better off than where you started. There's that barrier of like, is it even worth it to put yourself through that? And I don't think I was ready to do that again until I started to get so much worse. By that point, I had a tremor. I was walking with a cane very regularly. I was bedridden anywhere like four to five days a week with the fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I had aphasia so bad that I was losing very basic English words. One mm-hmm. time I was sobbing in my kitchen because I could not remember the word hat for the life of me, just describing and flailing like a game of bad Pictionary. It just wouldn't come. So it was a dramatic enough decline that I decided, okay, like I'm willing to gamble the acceptance, sort of be all in, if you will, yeah, and risk having to do all that all over again. If there's any chance, even the slightest glimmer of hope that maybe there's a different answer this time. And maybe that answer is something that's curable. Yeah. Yeah. That's actionable even. Yeah. Cause I think I, that really resonates with me. It's like you, it takes a lot of energy. Like it takes a lot of time and money and focus, just cognitive energy to do kind of both of those things. So if mm-hmm. you're focused on improving your qual- like acceptance and improving your quality of life, that takes work. It's not like that's not a baseline state at all. And similarly, if you're going to go back to the doctor and you're going to pursue all of this stuff, it takes all of those things again. And they're kind of at odds with each other in terms of how you can frame it in your own head. So it just no both of them are work, I think. And I like never want to understate that when people because I think sometimes when people do need a break, like when they're not ready, as you just described, sometimes maybe also because of outside pressures, people will feel guilty. Like I'm not doing enough to take care of myself or they'll get that message from the outside. And like Mm. rest is also taking care of yourself. And often you get to points where you're like, this isn't tolerable anymore. I need to take action. I think that's like both of those are pretty fair. Um, I think there's that added layer of the outside factors that come from just living in the capitalist world we live in, right? mm -hmm. Like you get the message constantly that you don't have the right to take up as much space as you're taking up because you're not contributing as much like marketable as what you're taking out. Yeah. And then you add becoming a parent, right? Yeah. And feeling like I took in so much need from my family financially, 
was balancing being the breadwinner and doing a majority of household chores. Like that all wears on you eventually with this message that you're burdensome. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of I'm going to take an obscene amount of money from our already struggling family and go pay for tasks that may or may not give me any answers. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to get to a place where you feel like it's worth it just to have the information because everybody deserves that. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, I think I bought into the lie of like, it's okay to do these tests because maybe I'll get better enough, right, to contribute in a more meaningful way. And so that justifies it. Right. Which dangerous because then if you don't get answers, you feel like, I guess I wasn't worth that money or that effort or that. That was a waste. There's a lot of outside messages that make it even harder to think you're worth it to go get those tests to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Just because that's like super common. And I feel like I see that a lot in like kind of wellness influencers, which it might not be about testing, but it might be about like, you know, committing to this diet plan or something. And it'll be like, just think about how much better you'll feel after. You'll be able to do so much more and that will make it worth it to put in the time, money, and energy that you need It's results-oriented. Yeah. Yeah. It's only justified by the results you achieve. Yeah. And a lot of the messages we're getting when you're chronically ill is the results are you need to get better. Yeah. So if you're spending all this money on therapies or treatments that just make you feel better or make it more tolerable to live this way. That's not good enough. Like what, what are you doing to be more quote unquote functional? What are you doing to contribute to society in a very measurable dollar amount way? Yeah. And I think that's held me back for a long time from being willing to pursue more answers Mm -hmm. because unless I knew that there were good odds that that test was going to say, good, you have something we can cure. Yeah. I didn't think the gamble was allowable for me. Yeah. Yeah. That I that deserve hits to me. take that chance. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so then obviously you did decide to go back out looking for answers. And how did that start? Uh, in the beginning, it was just sort of darts on the board again, right? Like, I don't know. Let's go back and look at everything we've looked at so far. Should we retest for some of those things again? We looked at MS again for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it was like, you have some criteria, but not some of the other big ones. So that's probably not it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in my case, I was very lucky that we had a family friend whose daughter, who's much younger than I am, who had started, she'd started to go through some very similar symptom progressions to my early illness. And totally separate from us, they were pursuing their own answers and found out that their daughter tested positive for Lyme. And so she went and started to get treatment and it just sort of started that that worm in my brain, right? Of, oh, well, that's interesting. We have so many overlapping symptoms. How, how, how cool. I wish I had that story. I wish I had had an easy answer, at least at the time I thought, what an easy answer. Mm-hmm. Boy, do I know better now. Uh, right. And it wasn't that I went, oh, aha, that's what I have, too. It just sort of planted that seed in my brain. Yeah, this could and be I an explanation. To think about it more and kind of talk to them about what they'd done to get diagnosed. And I brought it to my doctor at the time who immediately wrote that off. Her exact words were, oh, my gosh, Lyme is just the diagnosis du jour. Everybody thinks they have Lyme. And in reality, almost nobody has it. So don't. it's not worth going down that road. Trust me. And did you so, know about any of the Lyme controversy at that time? At the time? No. Yeah. I yeah. had no idea. Not no. a clue. Um, so I kind of went back to our family friend and said, yeah, she doesn't really think that's what I have. And 
she was actually the one that said, "I, you know, you should go look at this documentary called Under Our Skin. It's very interesting. And you you might find it interesting mm-hmm. and sort of exposed me to the live con- Lyme controversy. And my husband and I rented that documentary off Amazon one night and watched it. And by the end, I was in just tears. I was sobbing. Yeah. I heard my story over and over and over. And he was really angry. Mm-hmm. And he is like the sweetest, nicest. He's Canadian, okay? And he's the most stereotypical Canadian you'll ever meet. Like he's just the most easygoing, accommodating, like, oh, sorry, sorry. Like for him to be so visibly angered, mm-hmm. I've seen him like that. Because that documentary does a lot to show that not only is this controversy a problem, but it's a very manufactured controversy that doesn't need to exist. And there's moneyed interests in making this a problem. Mm-hmm. And he was so angry at the idea that there was even a chance that maybe that's what I had and that there were people out there that had put us through 15 years of hell for no reason other than money. He yeah. was livid, yeah. livid. I went back to my doctor and I was like, I really want to test for this. And they told me, fine, we'll do it, but we're not paying for it because it's an unnecessary medical test. So if you want it, you pay for it. Mm-hmm. Paid for the test. And the Lyme uh, testing protocol is a two-step test. So they did the first step and I came back to the follow-up appointment and she said that was a dead end, nothing there. Just from the, like, Elisa or Eliza? Yes. Yeah. I said, okay, great, whatever. Guess that's not it. And it wasn't until like a solid couple of months later that I was there looking at something else and said, can I just get a copy of like the paperwork of what we've done so far for my records? And I'm looking at the test results from that test and going, wait a minute. So there's a range listed here, a number range for negative. And my number is higher than that range. (laughs) Huh. So what is this? Isn't that a positive test? So I go marching back in and say, what is this? I have a positive Lyme test. And my insurance company says, technically, no. You don't have a negative test. That's true. But you don't have a positive test either. Sure. Which you should all have really confused faces right now because it's like there's yes and there's no. And then um, what? Yeah. (laughs) So I guess invented this mythical middle range called equivocal, which is technically you didn't test negative, but we're not willing to call it positive yet either. So we just put you in no man's land in the middle and say, shrug, we don't know. And had they, at this point, no Western blot at this point? This is no, just from, okay, just from the Elisa. They didn't feel like a Western blot was justified unless you had in that po- magic positive range. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so since they put me in this middle equivocal ground, which is so bizarre again, right? Like, then why have a negative range? It was like, you're not in negative. Okay. Then shouldn't I get the follow-up test then? (laughs) Yeah. Especially in that case. So there's something here. Yeah. Uh, And that's the argument I made with them is that I wanted the follow-up then because it wasn't negative. And they shut me right down and said, absolutely not. We're not doing that. So luckily we had started to do a lot of research on our own at that point, And we knew that we could go to iGenics and get that test ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we raised some fundraising because we knew we were in for a haul and it was expensive and we were already paying way more than we could afford for our health insurance premiums. So all of these tests and it was adding up. Yeah. So we fundraised some support and we did the lab work ourselves privately through iGenics, And not only 
did the Western Bloc come back with some positive strains, but it came back with enough positive strains that I had a CDC positive, which mm. is hella rare for Lyme patients. Yeah, that's hella rare. In, like, that's a serious positive. I thought yes. I had the golden goose, right? Like, now they can't deny it because I'm not even in that weird group of you have it, but not enough for us to count. I was in the, like, you definitely have it. Mm-hmm. So I go marching back into my insurance company and my doctor. I'm with Kaiser, so my doctor and my insurance, they're all one big company. Yes. I, uh, they're not a separate thing. Yeah, I get it. So I've been there. Back in and I'm like, hey, here you go. And they say, well, we didn't do this test, so we don't know if that's accurate. Like, we don't know how they do the tests. We don't know. Maybe you could have sent someone else's blood in for all we know. Like, we, we don't know. So that doesn't count for us. But if you want to go back and start over and do a new ELISA test with us and pay for that again because it's medically unnecessary, you can keep pushing. So we knew enough from our research at that point to know that even if we did it with them, the best they were going to offer me was like two weeks of antibiotics and a pat on the back. They weren't going to cover what I really needed anyways. So we decided, why are we still pursuing this with them? Let's just go outside of my insurance and get some real help from somebody who's a Lyme literate doctor who knows what they're doing. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We yeah. fundraised and we went and we saw specialists and started something totally outside of what my insurance was willing to cover. Yeah. And I've definitely ranted about Kaiser before because I have, um, they have been my insurer before. And also I've talked to other people who have been insured by Kaiser previously and like, I just think it's a huge problem when the the insurance company and the doctor have the same interests. Like I have mixed feelings, truthfully, about yeah. Kaiser because we went on a non-Kaiser plan for a while when we first moved here. My mm-hmm. husband's employer will not cover Kaiser, mm. and it was miserable mm. um, because I have so many different specialists. I mm-hmm. had to go and find all these people and figure out who was even accepting patients in yeah. my area and who took what insurance. And we got basically no care yeah. other than emergency care that year and got much sicker so there are some like for people that are long-term chronically ill there are some pluses to kaiser the fact that it's so cohesive that yeah you know my cardiologist sees my neurologist notes sees my psychiatrist notes they're all connected and i really like that i also they're all in one place find my own doctors yeah there's no like sorry we're not taking any new patients right now best of luck you get an appointment because you do yeah but there are other things that are definitely miserable about being with Kaiser. It's really hit or miss. Yeah. And I think like most of the things come up in what you're talking about right now, which is like during the diagnostic process, it's really in their best interest to not test widely because they don't want to pay for them and they can easily say what they said to you. I have had something similar. I know other people, but to your point, like the experience of going to somewhere where all of your doctors are also coworkers is like, that's a great idea. Because they're all I think in they one system. they have a better chance of passing complex illnesses because, like, mm-hmm. you have a cardiologist, neurologist that are talking and going, "Oh, these seem like unconnected symptoms," but actually, when you look at them together, yeah. But that is sort of a relatively recent development from my experience. I've had Kaiser pretty much my whole life, mm. and although in theory they've always had all their doctors under one umbrella, yeah, the whole idea of like internalizing the record really it was when they went electronic right Mm -hmm. now that the records are all sort of centralized electronically I think my doctors would have had a much better chance of catching some things earlier if I had been diagnosed you know if I had started getting sick like last year it would have looked really different right their portal is really good but yeah okay I also think that Lyme in general it doesn't matter what insurance company you're with I don't want to back too much on like 
I didn't get diagnosed because Kaiser's a jerk. Like, yeah. really? It's that wild west of nobody's going to diagnose or treat Lyme properly because no. once we opened that window of, well, maybe it's not a real thing, every insurance company jumped through that hole so quick, mm-hmm. any loophole, they're going to take it. Yeah. So it's not only Kaiser's fault. Anybody would have run me through the same rigmarole. It's just how it works with Lyme. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And like I've now I've spoken to quite a few people with Lyme and it's a universal factor that it's not really covered by insurance. It's also a problem in Canada where there's, social, ah. you know, public health care doesn't matter. It's still controversial enough that they can say that they're not going to cover it. Um, or and, they throw two weeks of antibiotics at you and say, we did cover it. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all we'll do. At the end, yeah. you're covered. That's Moving on. We don't want to hear about it again. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And like, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this, but it like it comes into these conversations about some stuff can be covered by insurance if they can if like your doctor can come up with another reason that you need it. Somebody that I interviewed also has POTS. I'm doing a lot of that. Yeah, (laughs) I'm doing a lot of symptom care now through Kaiser where as long as they can put it under a this is a symptom we can see. Yep. We don't they don't have to connect it to Lyme. It can be like, well, you have a cardiologist because we can see you have heart damage. We yeah. just don't know what it was. Right, right. And we will never acknowledge that you might have an explanation that might make sense. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a broad problem because of the controversy, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you went out and you found an uh, an LLMD and yep. raised money to pay for it because it's out of pocket and it's usually pretty expensive. <laughs> Thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a long process and it was an expensive process. If we had not fundraised support, we wouldn't have even been able to start mm-hmm. because that's the other kicker is if you, a lot of these doctors, mine included, um, because they're serving a private healthcare community, there is no bill me option. It right. is you pay for the entirety of your treatment up front mm-hmm. or you don't get treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there isn't, you know, like, oh, I'll figure it out in payments or all the rule things that people tell you they think they know. Like, oh, they can't send you to collections because it's medical. Like, none of that applies here. Like, you don't even get to start treatment one until you have a lump, multi-thousand dollar sum in your hands. Yeah. And I yeah. do think, like, I am not at all a Lyme skeptic or a Lyme denier, but I do think in some of the critiques about Lyme or critiques of chronic Lyme do focus on this element about how like you you go in and you have to pay so much up front and like because of the testing and because of all of these things not everybody is actually going to be helped by this and that's a problem and that oh I agree yeah that's the piece of it I agree with wild west out there yeah I've talked about this before that part of the reason that I'm so angry at the way western medicine has mishandled this is because they've sent us into this world where I'm now responsible to do all my own research. I have mm-hmm. no medical degree, right? So I'm out there and I'm basically Googling and hearing other people say, I was helped by this, I was helped by that. Yeah. And there's no real basis you can use to figure out what's right and what's not and what's what applies to you and what's you know yeah. worth. And you're being asked to drop all this money. And so, again, it circles back to that idea of feeling like it wasn't worth it unless you're cured. Right. And so you're trying to figure out, should I take even more money from my struggling family to go pay for everything from magnets to, you know, acupuncture? You you have no idea. Salt caves. All you know is so-and-so got better. So is it worth a try? Or if, if, if Western medicine would at least acknowledge chronic Lyme or late stage Lyme 
they would be able to give us more guidance on alternative treatments that there's at least some basis of fact and what's outright quackery. But right now you're just kind of on your own. Yeah. You're on on your own. And it's that stuff, but it's also the long-term antibiotic use of like, of like the people who are prescribing that. And we talked about this kind of before, but like, there's a huge secrecy around like who actually is an LLMD and who you can go to about this. And patients are exchanging this information like in Facebook chats, like not even in the groups. Like there's a ton of oh, yeah. privacy. Most have a rule that you cannot post a doctor's name or you will get banned yeah. immediately because very protective. Yeah. Uh, again, that documentary under our skin is so mm-hmm. worth it because it shows in, in the course of the documentary, multiple mm-hmm. doctors that got shut down. Mm-hmm. They got sued out of existence. Uh, lost their licenses and one of them that really hits the hardest in that documentary is he was like the pediatric mm-hmm. specialist mm-hmm. you see these parents in the courtroom sobbing because you know they're they're sad for him but they're mostly sad because what are they going to do where are they going right. to take their kids now it took them so much to even find someone willing to treat this thing when they get shut down we're all just sort of left going now what so yeah no we're very protective of doctors names yeah. it's just yeah. yeah, for those reasons. Like Fort Knox in those groups, you you really have to get screened out before we're willing to tell you anything. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's like it's because of that. But then this this huge problem that's happening is that there aren't good studies about who is helped by long term antibiotic use and what There's are the risks and how can you manage the risks. And that's another thing that people will critique when they critique chronic Lyme, which it again it makes me mad because of kind of what you just said is like you can take the doctor away. But then you just have people who don't have an option. So I am not at all on board with articles that are like, everybody is hurt by this long-term antibiotic use. Mm-hmm. But I'm frustrated that this controversy has made it so that it's really difficult to study. And that's like... It's a lot like ugh. the self-fulfilling prophecy cycle we talked about earlier with the mental health stuff, mm-hmm. right? Where they say, oh, it's just depression. And then when you end up with inevitable depression, they point back and go, see... This is very much like that in that they take away your access to traditional Western medicine by telling you that's not a thing. It doesn't need to be treated. Mm-hmm. So then you go out and you find treatments and then they turn around and tell you, well, those aren't like well studied. Those aren't factual. They're not peer reviewed. Yeah, but you told us that you wouldn't peer review anything. Right. That This isn't even really like, you wouldn't let us do research on any of this stuff. Yeah. And now you want to fault us for doing unresearched treatments. And around and around the weird circle goes. Yeah. This is just complete circular reasoning that makes no sense, but it leaves patients out in the cold. Oh, yeah. What are we supposed to do then? Yeah. They won't treat us, but we're not supposed to use unresearched treatments. So we should just sit and be sick and accept that because yeah. that's the only option left. Right. And that's like, this is my, my current stance on Lyme controversy articles is like, I'm just not interested in reading anything, any critique of chronic Lyme that doesn't start by acknowledging that people are sick. Like, yeah. people are sick and they need help. And I'm I'm interested. I'm interested in hearing about how maybe it's overdiagnosed because people who test negative still get treated. I want to know about that. But I want to know what you're suggesting that those people do. Because if you don't think that those people have a problem, then, like, I don't know why you vague article writer like I don't know why you're making this argument this argument is irrelevant unless you're focused on actually improving patient outcomes and I would say that's my same argument for doctors yeah back and I'm not mad that they missed it because the information that's out there it is hard to diagnose yeah like I'm not one of those people that'll say my doctor should have caught this like I I think it is a tough one to catch Mm -hmm. my issue with them is instead of saying 
we don't know what this is. When tests came back negative for all kinds of things, they said, it isn't a thing then because I don't know what this is. Yeah. My issue is I just wanted one doctor that would say, just because I don't know what's wrong with you doesn't mean it's in your head. Right. That's not on you. That's on me. Yeah. I'm the problem here because I can't solve this. Yeah. And like the entire industry. It up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so if you don't if huge. you don't have an answer, like you can tell me that you don't think it's Lyme, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have been mad at them if they had just said, I don't think it's that. But every time it was, it's not that, so it's not anything. Right. Let's go back to therapy and antidepressants. Yeah. That that second part that's, is the problem. That's where the problem is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So anyway, so you find an LLMD. Um, and did you just kind of show up with your hygienics results and were like, tell me what to do? Um, so I sent my hygienics results to that doctor when I originally applied for an appointment. He has an enormous waiting list. So I knew that it would be a, like a full six months out before I could start actually mm-hmm. doing treatment. And so because he only deals with Lyme now and because he's got so much experience, he sort of streamlined this into, well, since you're going to be six months out, Here's other testing I want you to get done, genetic testing, so you can look for things like, I know this one's controversial too, but like MTHFR mutations and things that might change the way he goes about treating you. Mm-hmm. Um, my genetic testing showed that I'm in the rarest group of the MTHFR mutation people. I'm what's called double homo. So all four spots are copied wrong. Every mm-hmm. single spot, all four possible ones are wrong, um, which is not just the rarest group, it's just the most complicated then for treating anything. Mm-hmm. You're very likely to have all kinds of uh, medication side effects from medications. Your body just doesn't detox properly. It doesn't know how to methylate, mm-hmm. uh, which was another big eye-opener for me because we'd had seven miscarriages mm-hmm. and not once did a single doctor say, having that many miscarriages is usually an earmarker of this genetic issue. Yeah, and like sure of enough, something. None of the like, Uh, folate or folic acid that I was taking, I wasn't getting any of it because I couldn't methylate it. Now that I've switched over to specialized vitamins, Mm -hmm. totally different. Blood work looks very different now. But again, nobody said, here's the thing you should get tested for. So he has you all that sort of stuff up front and compile like a profile so that by the time you come into appointment one, I don't want to say he's like an assembly line, like he's not a good doctor that doesn't care, but he's really got this down to, I want to help as many people as I can. So you will come in, mm-hmm. we will get to work from the get go. Yeah. Uh, and essentially I had to go out to another state for a few days at a time and you do multiple appointments a day over the course of a few days while you're there. Mm-hmm. So you get a hotel room and you come in and you do your morning appointment, you go back rest, you come in, in the afternoon and you repeat that process for a few days and then you go home. And are you seeing only the doctor or do you see other people within the clinic? Primarily just the doctor. He has other people that help with with different stuff because it's a very comprehensive program. There's immunotherapy. There's a whole supplement system you need to stay up with at home. There was a very strict diet while I was doing the bulk of treatment to give it the best possible chances of working. Um, So you see him, but then you sort of get passed off to the rest of the support staff to learn all these different things you need to be doing and do follow-up labs and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you go home and you you do the home part of the program for months, and then you go back out to the other state and you repeat and repeat as many times as it takes for you to show tests that say, we're not picking up Lyme anymore. 
And so you did just kind of name some of these things. But yeah, what is the protocol? So, so supplements. It was a combination of a lot of things. I will admit some of it. I, I've i told my husband that the first day that we went and he started explaining everything, I went back to the hotel room the first time and I was like, oh, my God, what have we done? Like we just wrote <laughs> this person a check for an obscene amount of money. And he's talking about woo-woo nonsense that, again, it's the Wild West, right? I thought, yeah. oh, no, we've chosen a quack. We've right. chosen a huckster. And this is someone who I'd researched so much. And he had tons of patients that had seen huge improvement when they've never seen help with anything else. But he started talking about some of the alternative therapies he does in conjunction. And I was like, you're not okay in the brain. <laughs> like, this, No, no, mm-hmm. no, we're not doing that. But um, there was a combination of those alternative therapies uh, combined with an immunotherapy and then a strict supplements program. I mean, I was taking like three dozen pills a day. It was crazy. And a very strict, exclusive diet. Uh, I said crazy. (sighs) I'm working on that one. Uh, It was difficult. It was abnormal. It was not what you normally see people taking a day. Yeah. Yeah. so it was a combination of a lot of different aspects of his therapies at once. Mm-hmm. So I tried not to focus too much on the more woo-woo things, but uh, there was some weird stuff in there too. Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, this I was is... sort of in that like, you know what? If you've had that many patients get better, I'm just gonna suspend my disbelief for right now and go with it because I need help. Yeah, and I, I think help. for me, there's also a piece of it in those situations because I've been not there but like I've gone down similar tracks is it's also like if I'm going to spend the money and the time and the energy on what this doctor offers then I'm going to do all of it I'm not going to do 80 percent and then always wonder if that other 20 percent would have made the difference that like is exactly my thought process I was like I would always wonder yeah would I have gotten better 100 percent if I had done the woo-woo stuff too so we'll yeah. just do all of it I also appreciated my husband's super black and white thinker, very logical. And he had sort of said, you know, 20 years ago, people thought acupuncture was complete and total woo-woo with no medical basis. In fact, and now there's tons of peer-reviewed studies on acupuncture. We've Mm -hmm. sort of legitimized that, yes, they were right all along. This is real medicine. Mm -hmm. So he said some of this stuff maybe 25 years from now they'll have an explanation just because we don't understand how that could work doesn't mean that it doesn't work so that helped me just sort of suspend disbelief and go with it yeah yeah okay and so so you start doing that and that's obviously especially at the beginning I feel like that many changes is like a very immersive experience it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of even just changing your diet like just changing your diet takes a lot of focus plus the supplement regimen, which I'm sure is also expensive, plus whatever yes. else you're doing every day. Um, so well, and with Lyme, doubled up because you have the Herx reaction, right? right? So with Lyme, because if you're making improvement, it looks like getting significantly worse mm-hmm. because as that bacteria dies off, it's barfing all kinds of junk and toxins into your bloodstream. So it's part of how by the time we went home from our first set of sessions, I knew it was doing something because I was sick as a dog. Yeah. Literally the first session, I felt like I was falling asleep in the the tail end of the session was when they started explaining, here's the supplements you'll do, at least while you're still here with us mm-hmm. to get you started. And I, I could barely stay awake through that. 
And mm-hmm. I had only barely started, went back to the hotel, slept for like three hours straight, got up. And I'll say this because it's an illness show. It felt like my entire digestive system decided we're just going to empty from all directions right now. Immediately mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. It sort of tipped me off that, well, it can't be complete hooey because it's having some kind of effect. Yeah. Uh, but once I got home, it was much of the same. I got much, much sicker at first. And so you feel defeated. Like not only have I maybe thrown thousands of dollars at quackery, but now I feel worse. This this is backwards of what I wanted. Yeah. But I would say it was probably three months or so into sticking with it that I started to first sort of see light breaking through of, okay, I... I'm a little bit more functional than I've been in a very long time. Mm -hmm. It was small things, but at that point I was excited to have any kind of glimmer of hope. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was probably well over a year of working with him before I really turned a corner in a significant enough way to feel like I I, I will never use the word cured because I'm definitely not there. And I don't think, very few people with Lyme ever really do get there. Mm -hmm. But I had a quality of life that I had probably not experienced since I started college. Yeah. Yeah. Definite marked improvement that you could see from the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it it took well over a year to get there. And I think that that distinction is something that also is really poorly understood by maybe the general public or by healthy people that like, there's a difference between being better and having like a significant quality of life improvement that still leaves you with a lot of symptoms. I don't know. I think like a lot of people kind of expect if you're going to spend this much money, if you're going to go to all this effort, like it must be because you're trying to get 100% better. And if that's not what you're going for, and if that's not, that's not um, the only focus that you have, then like you're just giving up. And yes. It's an idea of like, well, you're not trying, like, aren't you going to keep going then? Yeah. Or when I started to get better, there was a lot of, so you're cured, right? Like you don't have Lyme anymore. No, that's, and that's such a complicated question to answer even in and of itself. Yeah. Because you get to the point where at the time you could have tested my blood again and it would not have popped positive anymore. Mm -hmm. But A, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't have Lyme. Mm -hmm. It might. But even if I don't have Lyme, even in the best case, it doesn't reverse 15 years of damage either. And so that was the part that my doctor had to really sit me down the last time I saw him and say, I've taken you as far as I can take you right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying, and that was the first time that I had a doctor look me in the face and say, I'm not saying then that the symptoms you're still experiencing aren't real. Right. I'm saying... They're not caused by active infection. So some of these things, especially when we're talking about neurological symptoms in particular, there's only so much damage that we can reverse. Mm -hmm. Your brain can learn to sort of um, refragment like old computers used to do, right? Move stuff around to use a different part of your brain. Yeah. But you're never going to sort of regrow pathways that you lost. You're never going to fix damaged areas. You're just going to learn how to reallocate and live with the brain you have. And so this is about as far as I can take you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, was, that was a couple of years ago. So. Yeah. 
And how it doesn't mean that I need to go back and need to do active treatment again, but mm-hmm. that was sort of the end of that part of the process for now. And then it just moved entirely to symptom-based treatment back in the world of traditional medicine. So they won't say it's related to Lyme. They just say, you know, here's your neurologist that keeps your seizures under control. And here's your cardiologist that keeps an eye on your heart. And mm-hmm. here's all these different disparate doctors again. But for now, that works for me. I right. As long as they're helping me keep other symptoms under control, I can live with that. Yeah, yeah. You don't need them to be, like, 100% on board with your explanation. I, I don't ever expect them to acknowledge that mm-hmm. I have Lyme. Mm-hmm. And there, there are sometimes now when when healthcare policy gets wonky that I'm like, well, it's, it's also not the worst thing in the world to have a really ick long-term chronic diagnosis that's not on my chart, right? Like that's, yeah. that's one pre-existing condition I don't really need written on there just in case. So mm-hmm. I'm not even really pushing them to acknowledge it anymore. I don't yeah. care. Right. Because they symptoms that pop up. I don't care why they think those symptoms are there. Just treat them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so just to like rewind slightly. So when the Lyme doctor said like, this is pretty much what I can do to help you. One, I actually want to acknowledge that I feel like that kind of a thing is a good sign that someone is not in fact a quack, that they're not just trying to sell you something forever. Looked at it that way before. Wow. Actually, that's very true. Um, but on top of that, I actually just wanted to talk about, uh, like getting that information from someone. Did you, had you had that expectation that you might get to a point in treatment where, where you had kind of managed the active infection and would still be dealing with symptoms maybe indefinitely? Or did you, had you thought that you would be able to get rid of everything from the Lyme treatment? So... That family friend whose daughter had Mm -hmm. Lyme had seen this doctor as well, which is how Mm -hmm. we got his name in the end. Um, And we looked at a bunch of other possible doctors, too. But um, she had had such fantastic results that Mm -hmm. that really tipped the scales in his favor. Uh, And she is living now in a way that you would never know that Mm -hmm. she had Lyme. But in fairness, they caught it so much faster Mm -hmm. and got it treated really early. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. And my doctor had said as much when we talked in our last session that there's always going to be a difference between somebody who comes a year or two after, you know, contracting Lyme and somebody who's been doing this for 15 years. Right. So admittedly, I think I went in, I had really given up that acceptance, right? I had moved on to the hope again of maybe I can get quote unquote better. Mm-hmm. And just be a totally normal, healthy person who has this life that everybody has. And so it it, it was a little bit of a readjustment in that point to come mm-hmm. to terms with better better and not cured is is gonna have to be good enough. Yeah. 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 How do I learn to live with the body that I have now mm-hmm. instead of chasing that expectation of complete health mm-hmm. or being cured? Yeah. 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 Whatever that means. And so, so it sounds like things have stabilized more or less. And so now kind of what are things like with your body? And also what do you need to do to stay stable, which is a different thing, Mm -hmm. right? So the first year after we were done with him, I also managed to have a a prescribing psychiatrist inside of Kaiser take a little bit of pity on me mm-hmm. <laughs> and admit in a session that um, 
he believes me about the Lyme stuff. Can't really do anything about that on my chart. But uh, I had brought him a lot of evidence-based research that showed, hey, all these antidepressants you keep throwing at me don't really work for fatigue when you have a medical underlying fatigue reason. Right. Research agrees on that. Unless it's actually fatigue from depression, it's not going to do anything. And mm-hmm. I had been on easily a dozen different antidepressants over the years trying to treat fatigue. Uh, And that was still one of those factors that even after finishing up with my Lyme doctor, the fatigue was still crushing. I was not what I considered functional enough to be the mom of two kids. Right. And so I had brought him a lot of research that said there are physicians in other countries who treat that kind of long lasting fatigue, not with antidepressants, but with stimulants, like Mm -hmm. what you see for treating ADD traditionally. So I got this, uh, psychiatrist to take pity on me and prescribe me sort of off-label. So as far as Kaiser's concerned, I take Adderall for ADD. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're really looking at it for the fatigue. And so that happening at the same time that I finished up my Lyme treatments really complicates sort of my view on wellness now, right? Because it masks a lot of that ongoing fatigue. It helped me really become functional on a new level that there are days where if I don't take my pills, I sometimes do that because Adderall is short acting, right? So mm-hmm. if you don't take your pills that day, it's not like other medications. You can tell that day what you're right. on without it's out of your system. So I sometimes do that just to see how much I'm not naturally as healthy as I feel like sometimes when I'm on my pills. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the couple of years since we stopped active treatment, um. I definitely notice an ebb and flow to symptoms. There are mm-hmm. times where you'd never know that I, there was anything different about me. Um, I might just get a little winded or seem a little out of shape if we're doing something really active. But other than that, um, but especially in the winter, like October to February is vicious because yeah. A, the cold is just really hard on joints and on nerve damage. Mm-hmm. It inflames a lot of neurological problems, but also because it's everything season. It's cold season, flu season, norovirus season. It's everything. Right. So October to February, especially, um, you see a different side of me. I use my cane a lot more. My tremor comes and goes sometimes. That or if I've really been overdoing it, mm-hmm. right? If I don't get enough sleep or when I travel sometimes for my work now, I tremor constantly and I'm on my cane and it takes me two weeks to recover. And yeah, but so it varies wildly. Some yeah. days I think, wow, he really changed my life. And other days I feel like nothing's really changed at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It yeah. varies. Yeah. And I think that's normal. Like, not for everybody, obviously, but within chronic illness. And like what you said about the, the Adderall, that really speaks to me because I feel like I like oscillate so much between I don't want to take anything that's going to mask what's going on because I want to understand the full picture and I want to like focus on root causes. And then this is the same, I think, as that like quality of life versus pursuing treatment thing. And then sometimes yes. I'm like, I just want to get through the day. I just want to have a good day. I want to not think about my health for a while. And I like whatever tools are available to let me do that, I will use. And these are combating things. Like, and I think there's a lot of wellness messaging that can be anti-medication that gets gets in there. But like sometimes yeah. you just want to, yeah, mask your symptoms because you can. And that's an incredible gift to be able to do it, I think. Now, I, I have not always thought that. Because I ended up meeting the criteria for ADD. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
in the time since, it's become very clear I absolutely had undiagnosed <laughs> ADD. Yeah. So it was an added bonus of being on Adderall to go, oh, this is how your brain is supposed to work. Yeah. I had no idea. But I I recognize that I fall into a unique area of privilege there, right? That mm-hmm. not everybody can just march into their doctor and say, can you please give me this highly sought after, right. highly abused medication yeah, off Yeah, controlled. Uh, and have their doctor say, sure, I'm willing to do that for right. you. Um, but it is an area that I wish more doctors would get up to date on current research because mm-hmm. across the board, I'll say it again, antidepressants do nothing for fatigue unless it really is depression as the root cause of that fatigue. Mm-hmm. And, and that's interesting because you can have chronic fatigue and depression. Right. right? Totally. Totally. And so take antidepressants and have the antidepressants help with the other symptoms of depression and then not touch that fatigue because it wasn't a symptom of the depression. Mm-hmm. But stimulants work across the board if you can dose them correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's one more thread that I want to just ask about, and then we'll see if you have anything else on your brain. Um, but you just mentioned that you travel for work. And previously you had said that you weren't working and you were staying at home and then you were staying at home with the kids. So how did you start working again and when and how has that fit into everything? So for me, mental health wise, I found that I just wasn't able to be a good (laughs) disabled person and be healthy about it. I was never fully able to accept, yes, I have worth and value exactly as I am. I consistently felt down on myself for not doing something Mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily healthy right like I'm not advocating well every and I think we hear this messaging a lot from supposedly quote-unquote inspirational disabled people that get held up as see you can push through and make a life for yourself on your own terms and I want to be super clear that I'm not saying what I did was healthy yeah (laughs) I I were required constantly on the reality that I need to learn how to accept my sick days Mm -hmm. uh but I didn't (laughs) So I was constantly searching for things that I could do without a degree and without um, a traditional nine to five expectation of showing up on certain days or really any hourly expectation of showing up on certain days. Mm -hmm. So I became, you know, little miss entrepreneur and constantly tried new things. I did photography for a while. I, you know, made some bad crafts that I sold from home. I tried everything and eventually landed on blogging Mm -hmm. because that was a niche that really fit for me. Writing was a passion and I'm a natural oversharer and I had gained an audience of strangers without trying to on social media because I shared about a lot of stuff that people weren't really talking about publicly then. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that blossomed into a writing career and eventually I signed a book deal. So earlier this year, my first book came out. Which is so so exciting, I'm sure. It was a lot. I mean, (laughs) I could do an entire show just on what it looks like to write an entire book when you're chronically ill. Yeah. There were two extensions from my publisher. It was was not pretty the way it looks from the outside, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but that that's opened up some opportunities for me to speak um, and guest preach at certain churches. I write theology, so mm-hmm. I do a little bit of traveling, but it's I'm still learning my boundaries on that one, and mm-hmm. I'm not doing it well. That's mm-hmm. that's my confession. Not doing it well. Yeah. I went to a conference out of state uh, a month or so ago, mm-hmm. and um, 
it was just a great example of I have got to learn new ways of doing this. I wanted to be available for every person that came up and said, oh my gosh, it's you. Let me tell you about your book and what you mean to me and this is stuff. And so pretty much just didn't eat or go to the bathroom between sessions. I just talked to people. Yeah. That was not wise choices, y'all. I'm yeah. still a month later. Like I, I feel it. I yeah. feel it. It really set me back. So I'm learning, but not, yeah. not well, not well. <laughs> I also I also relate to that a lot and one of the, one of the reasons that I find it can be so hard is like I know when I'm at home and I have plenty of opportunity to rest I'm good at paying attention to my body and what it's telling me to do but as soon as I'm like socially engaged I love being socially engaged I love being in like conference environments active environments whatever where there are lots of people who are excited about something that I'm excited about and the thing about me feeling excited is it overrides all of those like messages from my body. So it's not just like, oh, I'm consciously choosing not to rest. It's like, I don't even notice that my body is telling me to rest. And that I, is its own problem. Some of that is a trauma response too. If mm -hmm. I learn anything in, you know, it's seemingly unrelated that I'm also in treatment <laughs> for trauma stuff, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of overlap. And mm -hmm. if anything, I've learned part of, part of PTSD is your brain sort of lives in a constant state of waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you don't trust good things because you've been hurt. Mm -hmm. And so your brain learned, especially when you experience neglect or abuse in your childhood, your brain is formed to expect, don't get attached to these good things because good things aren't for you. Mm. They will be taken away. You will get left. You will get hurt. And so whether you realize it or not, like that mantra is sort of running in your brain all yes. the time with even small things. And I think a lot of people who deal with chronic illness, especially, especially when you go years without a diagnosis and experiencing that gaslighting, yeah. have a lot of those trauma symptoms, whether you officially have PTSD or not. Mm -hmm. And so when you are out with people or when you get that rare good day where you have a little bit of energy, whether we realize it or not, our trauma brain is saying, this will never happen again, yeah. ever. Yeah. So do all the things right now because uh -huh. you will never be able to do the things again if you don't do them this second today. Yes. And so we don't feel those things, right? We don't right. feel pain. We feel hunger. I'm learning that I, I don't even register that I haven't eaten all day, right? Because yeah. my brain is so focused on do all the things. And around and around we go in the cycle of surprise. Now you're sick for two weeks. Right. Because you had a good day. Yeah, it's it's very much a trauma response. There's so many ways the chronic illness community overlaps with PTSD stuff. We all mm -hmm. could benefit from trauma therapists. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day. I think 100 yeah. percent. Ah, um, I think we've covered kind of all of my major topics and questions. Is there anything on your mind that you wanted to make sure that we talk about? I don't know. It's okay if the answer is no. You said a lot of the things. Yeah. I do that. I say all the things. <laughs> uh, there's that ADD again. Uh, no, I think we pretty much covered it. It's yeah. just really exciting to be on your show. Yeah, I'm so glad. This is. I'm excited to share it. I'm excited about all of the things, like the, you know, it's the personal experiences and then the pulling that meta stuff out to talk about the broader applications that I get really jazzed about these kinds of conversations. So thank you. I think that's why these conversations are important, right? Is that mm. I think 
one of the big areas of advocacy I've been trying to speak up in specifically lately with disability advocacy work is about social media, right? There's this trend right now to have rightfully needed conversations about the role of social media and phone addiction and things like that. But we're seeing a bit of a whiplash response of like, oh, I'm deleting my Facebook and we're going to get off these platforms and, you know, Facebook's bad. And yeah, Mark Zuckerberg clearly is not a good person. However, if the response is let's just delete them and get off, what we're missing is how much those outlets have been instrumental for the disability and chronic illness community to have these much needed conversations, to learn about other people with rare diagnoses or similar stories and make these connections because Mm -hmm. we can't have these bigger meta big picture thoughts if we can't first connect with people and go, oh, I'm not alone in this. I'm not totally unique. This, this is happening. This is more than just me. It's a trend. Yeah. So now what can we do about it and address it? So I'm a big component of it's not good enough for us to just all delete Facebook. Like we need to figure out how to fix these places as opposed to just ditch them because anything else is ableist y'all. It's super ableist. Yeah. No, these are necessary spaces. And something that stands out to me after a lot of these interviews is people who I talk to will be like, I never talk about chronic illness in my regular life. Like this hour or this hour and a half has been great because I just don't ever talk about it. And even people who are active on social media aren't having these conversations like pseudo face to face. And the difference that it makes to talk to somebody who just understands what you're talking about is huge. It can be life changing because just for that reason of what you described, like realizing that you're not the only one going through this or you're not the only one who's felt that way. It matters. It matters a lot. This is why representation matters, right? Yeah. We don't see our stories in popular media. We don't see our stories on the news. We don't see the issues that affect us represented. And so you start to think not only, you know, do you hear the gaslighting for 15 years that it's all in your head, but you start to feel like you're the only one. Mm-hmm. That this isn't something that's happening to other people. And I think mm-hmm. that just makes you feel more powerless. And the more of us that talk about this stuff publicly and the more of us that find connections with other people who've walked this road, I think that's step one before we can successfully advocate for the changes. Like yeah. We recognize there's problems in the system because we hear other people tell the same story. It's much like I watched that di- that documentary, right? Mm-hmm. I saw Under Our Skin and I went, oh, this is a thing. Yeah, this this happens to people. It's not just me. I didn't just get a bad doctor. This is a thing. Now we can ask, then what are we going to do about it? Totally. Yes. I think that's a good place to end it because I just agree so thoroughly. Thank you for listening to episode 58 of No End in Sight. You can find Stephanie on Twitter at Steph Tate Writes, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bennis B. And of course, you can find the show on Instagram at no.end.in.site.pod. Plus, don't forget to check out the new No End in Sight collection on Medium, where you'll find stories and personal essays about life with chronic illness. You can find that at medium.com slash no-end-in-site. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang at your home.
I've got lots of simple icons that you can mix and match. Um, and I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.